Our passage this morning comes from 2 Peter, uh, chapter 1, verses 12 through 21, if you want to turn there in your copies of God's Word. Um, that's page 1018, and your Bible's in front of you. Um, again, that's 2 Peter, chapter 1, verses 12 through 21. But before we read God's Word together, let's go to Him in prayer. Father in heaven, we have gathered this morning, um, and we've come to the point where we hear from you in your Word. Father, you've spoken in the years past. I mean, you promised again to speak today through your word. It's living and it's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Um, it shows us who we are and it shows us our need from you. And so we pray that as you've done in the past, that you would continue to speak again today in us and through it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Text is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 21. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on that holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I'm not sure about you, but I feel tired. Um, and for those of you who know me, you may know that I was just um, with a bunch of our middle school students at Covenant College um, for the EDGE Summer Conference, and we got home on Wednesday. I'm tired because of that, but I'm not only tired because of that. I'm tired because I feel the weight of the world almost on a daily basis. Maybe you're like me. Just think about the world for a second. Russia's still waging their war against a sovereign nation, causing international stress and the displacement and suffering of millions of people and families and massive physical and environmental destruction. And, uh, and, and mercenaries marching towards Moscow only to be turned back um, and, and to be sent elsewhere. Submersibles, which are submarines, I think, filled with adventurers imploding as they descend to the ocean floor to view the Titanic and overcrowded migrant boats in the Mediterranean Sea capsizing. A world in which U.S. politics has become religion, and people on either side will now publicly and unashamedly voice their desire for the literal death of those on the other side. Friends in Nashville, who we heard much about at General Assembly two weeks ago in Memphis, still mourning all of the aftermath caused by the evil and terrible violence that ripped through their school hallways the morning of March 27th. That's just the world. I feel tired. Think about the events in our city. Just the first six months, 7,000 cars stolen, smashed windows and parking lots, senseless shootings on the news almost every night, and daily violence often committed by those who are still just children. I'm not sure about you, but it feels like our city, Memphis, is on edge. 
I feel tired. Think about the events in our own church, the daily struggles we face as a large church. This is is now my 13th or 14th summer at IPC. It's my first time being at a big church. I came from smaller churches before that. It's hard to get away from the pain that, that people in our congregation feel. It's real. I'm on this text chain. Uh, for people who are in the hospital, daily we get text messages of those who, who, who need prayer and help. It's always something. Surgeries, cancer, diagnoses, funerals for the young and for the old. Someone said at large churches, bad news always comes in threes. I don't know about you, but I'm tired. And then we think about the complexity of our very own hearts. It's easy to see the brokenness in the world, and it's usually pretty easy to identify the perpetrators um, who have contributed their fair share to it. But if we're honest, we know that sin isn't just an out there kind of thing. It's something that's in here in us too, and we've contributed in our own ways to the mess that we see as well, whether it's obvious to us or not. It's good for us to remember the words of Jesus who reminded us not to judge so quickly because we, the speck that we see in our brother's eye is, is nothing in comparison to the log that's in our own. I have to admit, it feels like I've become a half cup, uh, half, cup half empty kind of person, a daily pessimist. My wife, Ashley, who I love um, somewhat now regularly um, and embarrassingly, calls me with her head shaking, a curmudgeon. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you're a curmudgeon. I hope my kids don't feel, follow my footsteps, but I fear that they are. It's hard for me to feel so optimistic when so much out there in the world and in here seems to be so wrong. And to be completely honest, the brokenness and tragedy of the world really hasn't come knocking on my door like it has for many of you. If you're like me and you've been mostly been immune to, to real pain and real suffering, and we all know that one day it's coming. The thing I hate most about myself, honestly, is that I'm usually a cup half empty kind of guy. I feel tired. I wish my outlook on the current affairs around me was different and that my outlook on the horizon of the world and its future would become brighter. I know that as a Christian, my outlook should be different. I know that. And in this passage that we just read, we get a reason why our view of the pain and the sadness around us should be different. Second Peter is for people who are struggling and living in difficult situations. Many of the people that Peter is writing to were under heavy persecution by Rome. They were suffering in tangible and real, in real ways. Some of them were even dying for their faith. It's a book for people who feel the weight of the world and who feel tired and who know firsthand the destructive, destructiveness and evil in the world, in the city, in this church, and in our own hearts. It's for those who feel down and out um, and who might be tempted to throw in the towel at any given moment. Peter basically says this. He says that Christians, because of the hope that we have, we are cup half full kind of people, that we're no longer curmudgeons, He gives us something to look forward to, and he calls us to, no matter what is in front of us today, to look forward to what is to come, to push on. What are you looking forward to? Your cousins might be coming for a visit this summer. Maybe you're going on a trip with your family. Maybe you're like me, and you're hoping that the Grizzlies would finally win that coveted NBA championship. A wedding, a first date, the first day of college, a promotion at work, the new whatever you've been longing for and hoping for. Can I share what I'm looking forward to? I've been on three trips this summer for work, and I have one more coming up next week. I'm looking forward to July 16th when those are past me, and we climb in our van and we drive to Maine, my family. We have this cabin that my wife's great-grandfather built on a lake, and I'm look, I, count, I count the days, months in advance. What are you looking forward to? In our passage this morning, Peter puts something before us that gives us bright hope for tomorrow. That's what we sang. Even in the midst of hardship, even in the midst of brokenness and tragedy and suffering, 
even in the midst of all of it, we have something that we can look forward to. Peter gives us something to look forward to, and this thing that we look forward to should make all of us who are pessimists optimists, and all of us who are cup-half-empty kind of people into cup-half-full kind of people. What is this thing that, he's, that Peter's talking about? It's the future return of Christ, and you might have missed it as we read it along, but we'll, we'll, we'll read it again. The future return of Christ. Jesus is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He will make all things new at his return. I remember a pastor who, who I look up to said this one time, that, that Jesus isn't going to return and he's going to make, make all new things. He's not going to like wipe everything clean and start over. He's going to make all things new, and there's a big difference. There's going to be restitution and, and reconciliation. Um, things that have been broken will be fixed. Sally Lloyd-Jones said um, that when Christ returns, he's going to make all of the sad things untrue. Jesus is coming back. That's what we can look forward to. Our bright hope for tomorrow is that he really is coming back and that he will finish everything that he started. You can have confidence in that fact, friends, that Jesus is coming back. It's something to look forward to. No matter what you're going through, that Christ is coming. He will indeed judge the world on the last day, the living and the dead. He will deal with all the evil, and he will judge it, and he will remove it from his restored world where, yes, all will be well for all of those who are his and who are covered in his blood. The devil and all of his people will be separated from the people of God, and we will live in a world where it is no longer possible to sin, and we will no longer feel the effects of the sin around us, and all will always be well. Christ is coming back. In our passage this morning, I have two points, and you can see them in your outline. The first is that there's a call to remember in our passage. There's a call to remember. But secondly, um, there's a call to cling to Christ's future return. Call to remember a call to cling. So first, a call to remember. We see this in verses 12 through 15, which we'll read in a, in a few minutes. After learning um, that he only had a few months to live, Randy Pausch, who was a college professor at Carnegie Mellon, gave his final lecture to his students about wisdom that he wanted to impart to them before his death. His speech was recorded on video, and it was uploaded to YouTube, and it, it raked in millions and millions of views. And somebody saw that this could be worth some money, and so it was turned into a book, and it made the New York Times bestseller list. And um, people hung on every word that this professor had because they were his parting words. What insight was he going to give about life that may benefit me, people wondered. You see this sometimes, too, with people on death row, and before their um, death, they're asked, do you have any last words. Or maybe to put it even more lightly, maybe you've, maybe you've grown up in church and sometimes pastors move on. And I heard about a pastor last week at a church who preached his final sermon after being at a church for decades. And the congregation wept through, through his entire sermon because they were his last words to the congregation before he moved on. I was at a church once where a pastor left on not so good terms and he used the pulpit on his last Sunday as an opportunity to air his grievances. That wasn't a good, uh, good way to, to, to use his last words. But final words are important because they reflect the heart of what is most important to the person speaking them. If you had the opportunity to say some final words to people you love, what would your words be? They would reflect your heart and what is most important to you. If you had that opportunity to say some final words to whoever, what would you say? What would you share? What insights and wisdom and understanding would you give to whoever you love and care about? In this passage this morning, we, see, we get a glimpse of the reality of the moment. These are Peter's last words. Scholars call this, this, this book, Second Peter, his will or his testament. 
They're his last words to a people that he loves because he knows that his death is imminent. He says that in verse 15 in our text, that I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. How does Peter know his death is imminent? We're not really sure that he knows that it's coming soon, but we're certain that under heavy persecution, Peter was eventually martyred after writing this book. You may remember Jesus told Peter after Jesus rose from the dead and he was with the apostles for 40 days, he said this to Peter, I tell you the truth, when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will will take you and lead you to where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. As we read verses 12 through 15, more than anything in this section, we see Peter's heart. His burden is that his friends wouldn't forget the central gospel truths when things get hard and things get tough. He knows the temptation for all of us to doubt what we've been taught and once claimed as true for ourselves. He knows the temptation for us to become lackadaisical, and he knows the very real threat that many who once helped spread the good news of Jesus to the world could easily just walk away for fear or false teaching or for the love of the things of the world. He knows this is a real temptation for those who want to embrace the gospel to throw in the towel and walk away for a variety of different reasons. He knows all of these things. And in these last words, he gives them, and in turn, you and me, reasons why they and why you and I can confidently carry on in our walk with Jesus. There's been some discussion about when this passage breaks. You can, if you have an NIV Bible or an ESV Bible, you can see how they break up differently. But when Peter talks about the call to remember, which he does in this section, is he talking about what he's already said in verses 3 through 11, which Ed covered last week? Or is he, is he talking about what he's about to say in verses 16 through 21? And I think the answer is both. In verses 3 through 11, Peter's talking all about how we can carry on. If you're a Christian, you'll bear gospel fruit, and the gospel will change you. He says, make your election sure carry on and bear fruit. But in verses 16 through 21, um, they're also connected to these verses in 12 uh, 12 through 15 because Peter uses the connecting word for. Um, And so he wants us to pay attention. These are his final words and and they're important. So Peter's call for God's people to remember is important for two reasons. One is because there's a danger of false teachers. And then secondly, the dangers of forgetting. So the danger of false teachers. We see this in verse 16 if you look at your copy of God's word. Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. There were people who were discrediting the teaching of the apostles, Peter himself, and those who were claiming that the doctrines that they taught were foolish and that they were lies and that everyone who teaches the doctrines of Christianity should be discredited and everyone who once believed in these very same doctrines should just abandon them and move on. We'll see why we can have confidence in Peter's assertion that Christ is coming again when we get to our second point about clinging to Christ's future return. But false teachers were essentially saying that you say Christ is coming again. Well, we don't believe that Christ is who you even said he was. And so you should just walk away. You said he was going to come again. Well, where is he? Some of the scoffers said, you say that Jesus is coming again. Where is he? He should have come back by now. The scoffers look at Peter and they say that the gospel has failed that it's a farce, a fabrication, a fable, and that the followers of Christ are outright fools and that you should just give up and find something else. Is the world that we live in today any different? More people are suffering worldwide for the gospel and for Christ than at any other moment in history. We don't really see that so much here, but we see it in some ways. We live in a world where Christians are now taken to court because of what we believe. The world is actively trying to make Christians embrace and affirm what they believe is true, but what we believe the Bible clearly calls sin. 
We live in a world where you and I may actually, in tangible ways, have to suffer and sacrifice for the gospel. The only way we'll be willing to suffer anything at all for the gospel is if we really do believe in our hearts that Christ willingly gave his all for us, even his own life, so that we might become friends of God. If you don't believe that, you won't be willing to suffer. We live in a world that laughs at the claim that at God's right hand, there are pleasures forevermore because it believes that you can find all the pleasure and satisfaction that you want right here and right now, away from Christ and his gospel. The world tells us that you're missing out and that you should walk away. But Peter says, no, don't believe it. This gospel that we proclaim is fact and it's true, and you can have confidence that you are standing on solid ground when you stand on Christ and his gospel. When the world and false teachers question the essentials of the gospel and even the very word of God, you and I need to cling to and remind ourselves that even in spite of what we might feel and in spite of what others are saying, that we are committed to the authenticity of God's holy word and all of the promises that it contains and that we are committed to all the doctrines of faith that it clearly communicates to us. We believe that the Bible really is the only rule of faith in life. There are not only those who said that Christianity was a fable, a myth, um, a made-up story, it's worth leaving behind, but there were those who were claiming to be Christians, but who didn't believe in the true gospel, um, and they were false teachers, and you'll get to hear from, um, from the others in the next few week, weeks in chapter two. So not only was there a danger of false teachers, but secondly, um, Christians are prone to forget the basics of the gospel. To Peter, he wants the gospel. We see this in verses 12, 13, and 15. If you look at God's word, I'll read those in a second. But to Peter, he wants the gospel to be at the forefront of our minds at all times. He wants the gospel to be something we live by and something that we die by. I mean, look at verses 12, 13, and 15. I want to remind you, he says. I want to stir you up by way of reminder. Another translation says, I want to refresh your memory. You think you know it, but let me refresh your memory because um, knowing and believing are different things. And he says, after I leave, I want you to be able to recall these things. Peter is saying, don't forget what I've just told you and what I'm about to tell you. Don't forget it. Write it down. Remember it. Remember what I'm saying. It's for your own good. It also should be said that there's a big difference between knowing generally about something and knowing something that changes the way you live. You can know like that Jesus is Lord, but then when you really know that Jesus is Lord, you're willing to sacrifice and submit to him no matter what it costs. Peter's saying, don't forget. A pastor said something that struck out, stuck out to me, that in elementary school, he learned the importance of remembering on time. I've never heard that phrase before or that principle. And the principle isn't just one that elementary students should be taught, remembering on time. It's a principle that you and I as Christians that we should live by. We should remember on time. When a ball goes across the street, a six-year-old needs to remember on time that it's dangerous to run into the street where there might be cars blazing by. When sin comes knocking at our door, we need to remember on time that we have God's spirit and that we can say no and we can move on in obedience to God. Remembering on time is so important. And Peter is saying that we are most tempted to forget the gospel when things get hard and things get tough. We need to remember the gospel on time. This is what he said, this pastor. He said, remembering God's word on time may be the most effective way to prevent oneself from stumbling. One vital role of the Spirit of God is precisely to remind the believer about the things that he should never forget. We need to remember the gospel on time. 
Peter knew of this great temptation and this tendency that we have to forget the gospel at the very moments when we need to remember it, when things get hard, when our faith is challenged, and we, we feel like we're discredited, we've been told to walk away, and we don't know what to do. Peter is a real-life illustration of what he is desperately wanting us to know. Because you may remember, if you're familiar with God's word, that when Jesus was taken away before his crucifixion, Peter forgets on time. He disowns Jesus. He said, do you know this? I don't know Jesus. Three times he denies him. He walks away. He forgets on time when things get hard. And Peter is telling you and I in his final words, don't do what I did. Stand firm. I screwed up once, and I'm now ready to put it all on the line for Christ and his gospel. Peter is saying that he wants you and I to remember on time when it gets hard, even if it means we might have to suffer. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, for it is, not the simple tr- is it not the simple truth that we always tend to forget the gospel? The ver- we always tend to forget the very things we want to remember. And conversely, we find it almost impossible to forget the things that we'd like to forget. I'll read it again. Is it not the simple truth that we always tend to forget the very things we want to remember? And conversely, we find it almost impossible to forget the things that we would like to forget. How true is that? Th- that one thing that you did all those years ago that haunts you every day. That one time when, when, when things got hard and you forgot the gospel. It's so hard to remember the gospel on time. And Peter says, telling us, don't forget it. Remember it. Christians are remembering people, but we remember the gospel at the right times. We must not forget our triune God, who he is, and all that he's done. This call to remember and not forget is littered throughout the pages of Scripture if you read through the Bible. Jesus knows our tendency to forget. In Deuteronomy 4.9, 4, after God's people are brought out of, um, out of, out of Egypt and, and, and the Exodus, we hear these words, Only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things that your eyes have seen and let them fade from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. Forgetting leads to fading. Don't let the gospel and Christ fade from your heart. What's crazy about those words is there are people who actually saw the miraculous works of God and they forgot. And what happened? The gospel faded from their hearts. Don't let the gospel fade from your heart. In Proverbs 4, 9, we hear this. We hear this. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Do not forget my words or turn away from them, the Lord says. As Christians, we need to remember God's word. And we need to remember it and we need to know it. We need, to, we need it in large doses. You're getting a little bit this morning. We need it at home. We need it at church. We need it with our friends. We need it in private worship. We need it in family worship. We need it um, worship when we are with God's people. We need it in Sunday school, in our communities. We need God's word over and over and over again so that we do not forget it when we need to remember it. Peter knows the tendency is for us to forget, and he wants us to remember this morning. What part of God's word does Peter want us to pay particular attention to? It's the second coming of Christ. We see that in our text this morning. So we've seen that there's this call for us to remember and to resist the danger of false teaching and and the danger of forgetting the gospel. But secondly, Christians are people who cling to the reality and the doctrine that Christ Jesus will come again. There's a call to cling to Christ's future return. We see in verse 16, um, Peter says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, I'm not going to spend much time here, but there's been some confusion about what Peter's actually saying. Is he talking about the incarnation when Jesus first came, when he was born in Bethlehem? Or is he talking about when Christ is going to come again? And I think there are some good reasons why you and I can believe that he's talking about the second coming of Christ. The first is, is because it's an overwhelmingly popular opinion. There's very few theologians or scholars who think he's talk, talking about the incarnation. But secondly, Second Peter devotes almost a third of his book talking about the second coming of, Christ's, of Christ in chapter 3. And this is his way of introducing the topic to us um, and to those that he loves. Peter's telling his people that in the world where they will know real suffering and real pain, that they can confidently look forward to Christ's second coming, the day of the Lord. It's also worth mentioning, for whatever reason, that the doctrine of the second coming of Christ is scarcely talked about within the church anymore. I don't really know why that is. I mean, we talk a lot about justification and sanctification and sin and all these things, but we really don't talk a lot about glorification and Jesus coming again. As you read through the pages of the New Testament, even in the Old Testament, it comes up over and over and over again. It was a central teaching of the apostles that Jesus was going to come again and make all things new, and it was spoken of by the prophets. Jesus himself had lots to say about how he was going to leave his disciples and that he was going to come back again soon. The second coming of Christ is a central doctrine of the gospel message, and without it, you're left with something other than Christianity. In Acts 3, we find that Peter preached a sermon, and he urged the Jews at the temple to repent of their sins so that times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Christ who's been appointed to you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. And in Acts 10, you may remember that remarkable story of um, Cornelius and his family coming to faith in Christ. And Peter reminds them of Christ, who is, quote, the one whom God has appointed the judge of the living and the dead. We could go on and on and on with references from Peter and Paul and others, even in the Old Testament and the prophets, that gospel, the, the, the second coming of Christ is central to the gospel. The Bible plainly teaches the second coming of Christ is essential. And Peter wants you to know, and, I, and, and it's something that we, sh we should think more about. For when we suffer, it is what we most need to remember, that in spite of our pain and in spite of our suffering, Christ is coming. When he comes, it'll be a time of refreshment, and he will restore everything. How beautiful, what a thing to look forward to. Regarding the second coming of Christ, a pastor reflected um, that the apostles, quote, lived in light of this particular doctrine, and their whole outlook was governed by it. They were prepared to sacrifice because of it, and they were prepared to suffer because of it. And when they endured previous, per, uh, previous persecution, this was the thing that sustained them most. There are two reasons why you and I can have confidence that Christ will come again, and why we can cling to the second coming of Christ. The first is, is that Peter and the other apostles were eyewitnesses to Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension. More specifically, we see here in, in our passages in, in verses 16 through 18 that Peter remembers the time when he saw Christ transfigured on the mountain, that beautiful passage that we read about in Mark 9, Luke 9, and Matthew 17. And he heard God's voice come from the sky saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Look at verses 16 through 18. This isn't just Peter, but he's saying we. He's talking about him and his, the other apostles. He says this, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty for when Christ received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on that holy mountain. Peter's saying, if you don't believe me, ask them. It's true. 
The Christian faith is dependable, and it's not a fable or a myth or a farce, because the apostles didn't base their faith or their message on their feelings or how the gospel had subjectively changed them individually, but on the evidence that they gave and the testimony they put before others. It was entirely based on everything that they saw and what they heard. They gave facts that could be verified. They named names. You don't believe me, go and ask this person. They didn't preach themselves, and they didn't preach just about what had happened to them. They, pray, they preached Jesus Christ about who he is and what they saw him do with their very own eyes. Peter and the other apostles were eyewitnesses to Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension, and they heard Jesus speak of how he would come again. They saw Jesus make those who were blind see. They saw Jesus heal the man who was paralyzed. They saw the man walk and run and stand up. They saw Jesus calm the storm and walk on water. They saw Jesus nailed to the cross. They saw the empty tomb. They saw him after he was raised from the dead, and they spent 40 days with him before his ascension, which they were also witnesses to as well. And Peter wasn't only an eyewitness, but a a pastor said that he was an ear witness as well. He heard God the Father's very own voice from heaven claim that Jesus is God's beloved son with whom he is well pleased. Having experienced all of this, the apostles went on teaching about what they had seen and what they had heard. This is how the apostle John begins his first letter, 1 John. To that which is from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, and which we've looked upon and touched with our very own hands concerning Jesus, the word of life. John is saying, I've been with him. I've seen him. I've touched him. I've heard him. You can trust that Jesus is who he said he was. You can trust that your faith is sure and it's not a fable. The story really is true. You and I both know that it's not wise to place your confidence in things which are untested and unverified. Many of you, like me, may have watched the news reports um, in the last two weeks about the Ocean Gate submersible, which tragically imploded as the group descended to the depths of the ocean floor, causing the death of all five on board. A man who was scheduled to go on a different dive with the Ocean Gate sub reflected on his reasons for ultimately deciding not to go on the trip after all. He and his team had questions about the validity of the strength of the carbon fiber hull and the lack of research showing that it would maintain its required strength over time. And they had questions about the shape of the sub, and they also had questions about how its structural strength um, would decrease after each dive. They had other reasons as well, but this man who decided not to go on one of the tours said this about Stockton Rush, who was the CEO and one of the five passengers who died in, the last, um, in this tragedy. He said this, Stockton was a charismatic salesman who really believed in the submersible's technology, and he was willing to put his life on the line for it. Sadly, Stockton had a false confidence in the strength of his company's submersible, and it led to his unfortunate death. The apostles, however, they had seen Jesus. They'd eaten with him. They saw his miracles. They saw God at work through Jesus, God's son. And they believed it so much that they all almost willingly to a man were ready to die because of Jesus and who he is and what they witnessed. Is is our faith in the gospel faulty? Will it crack and break under pressure? How can we have confidence that what we believe is really true? Because it's been verified and it's been recorded by eyewitnesses who are ready and willing to die for the gospel. They saw Jesus, they ate with him, they heard him, and they touched him. They name names. If you don't believe me, ask this person. 
There's good evidence that almost all the apostles were martyred. They were killed for their faith. They held firm and they were willing to die, not because of how they felt, but because of what they saw with their very own eyes. But not only that, um, not only can we have confidence in the eyewitnesses, Peter says that you actually have a better reason um, than, his, than his and the other apostles' experiences to have confidence that Christ will come again. He says this, that you have the very word of God. We see this in verses 19 through 21, and these, these three verses have confused uh, many people for a long time. This is what Peter says, and I actually think it's quite simple. Um, uh, yeah, here's what he says. And we have something more sure the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention is a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What do we say every week after we read God's word? We said it this morning. We say, this is the word of the Lord. Peter says that an even more trustworthy and reliable testimony than the eyewitnesses is in something that we have even more sure of is this, God's very own word. What is the word of God? I mean, like theologians have written their magnum opuses on that very doctrine, the word of God. I've got books on my shelf that are this thick that had taken theologians and scholars probably years to write. But really simply, God's word is worthy of our attention because it changes people. We often call it here at this church at IPC a means of grace. We pay attention to it because it is our only rule of faith and living. It shines its light in dark places. It shows us our sin and our sinning. It shows us our need of a Savior, the risen Christ, who will return again. When God's word is read and heard and the Holy Spirit uses it to open our eyes to Jesus, a morning star rises in our hearts. It is through the reading and the Holy Spirit using God's word that we can believe the gospel and be transformed into God's new people. In 1 Peter 2.9, Peter talks about how God's people have been brought from darkness and they brought into God's wonderful light. And this comes from hearing and believing God's word. How do we receive God's word? Peter tells us in verses 20 through 21, they're rich, rich words, but we, they can be very confusing. I mean, I'm not going to talk about this too long, but these are the very verses that the Roman Catholic Church uses for saying, you know what, y'all can just leave your Bibles at home and we'll tell you what it means. We'll interpret it for you. I don't think that's what Peter is getting at here. I think it's actually much more simpler than that. I think what Peter is saying is, is that Scripture is entirely the Word of God. You may have heard us use words like this. It's inspired and fallible and inerrant. And all of those big words mean that Scripture is entirely of God's divine will. It's true and it's without error in everything that it says. Scripture didn't come about by the will of man, but that God spoke through men in different places and at different times to communicate everything that he wanted to say to it, the world. Jeremiah didn't decide, do, do I like this prophecy that I'm about to write, that I'm about to record? It wasn't up for him to interpret it. He just wrote it. That's what Peter is getting at. That's what God's word is. It's God's divine word to his people. Um, Jeremiah wasn't only observing what he saw and then writing about his experience. He wrote that what he wrote under divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit who carried him along in his writings. You may remember in Jeremiah, the great prophet, in chapter 1, verse 9, Jeremiah, Jeremiah writes this, The Lord reached out his hands, and he touched my mouth, and he said to me, I've put my words in your mouth. Scripture isn't an interpretation of the writer. It's God's very own word. Augustine said that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. The words in this book didn't come about by the will of or interpretation of man, but these are God's word that he wrote through human authors. 
Paul said in 2 Corinthians, unlike so many, who do not pe- we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, we, preach, we stand before God with sincerity as those who are sent from God. In a commentary, um, Nunez um, writes this, the writers of scripture often risk their lives preaching to an unbelieving world. Why? Because they were convinced that they had received their message directly from God. They had absolute confidence in the source and the power of the message that they proclaimed. They knew perfectly well that they spoke on God's behalf. The preaching of a fallible word that came from themselves would call into question God's character. So they preached only what they knew came from him. So what are we to do with God's word? We're to pay attention to it and accept it as it is. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. If God's word is true in all that it says, Christ is coming again. We can trust that this event will happen. It's littered throughout the pages of scripture in its entirety. Martin Lloyd-Jones has this long quote that I'm going to read. He says this beautifully. He says this, Peter has been telling these people about the return of Christ, about the second coming. How can you and I know that this is going to happen? Well, my ultimate and only answer is this. I find it stated in this book, and I believe that this book is not the imagination of man, but God the Holy Spirit speaking through man. As I read it, I'm confronted by the fact of Christ. I'm confronted by these inspired, authentic records, and I believe what I believe about him because I find it here, and I therefore believe when I am told that he is coming again. I either accept this book and the doctrines that it teaches, or else I base my life and my view of the future upon the thoughts and the ideas and insights and understandings of men. As I'm confronted by these alternatives, I say for myself that I'm driven to believe this word, which is not of man's will, but which is the product of men moved, born along, inspired, carried along, driven and guided by the Holy Spirit. Here is a word in which truth and in in fact is the word of God himself. It is not private interpretation. It is not human understanding. It is God speaking. Let him who is wise hear the word of the Lord. So by way of summary, we've been called to remember that in the midst of the struggles of this world, we can have Christ, the confidence that Christ will come again. We can have confidence that he indeed will come again because of the reliability and the trustworthiness of the eyewitnesses and the apostles and God's very own word, which is more sure. Do you know the second to last verse in the Bible? flip to the back and you could look at it later. Jesus says this, surely I am coming soon. Because of these five words of Jesus, curmudgeons start to see the bright side of things and they have a new view in mind. Curmudgeons become heralds of Jesus who speak of good news in in, in light of a world that's filled with bad news. Are you ready? What are you looking forward to? Are you looking forward to that day when Jesus will come and he'll make all things new? We should be. That's what Peter in his last words wants you and I to have confidence in. That no matter what is coming our way, we can look forward to Christ whose return is sure. When he comes again, it'll be so good for those who are in Christ. It'll be a day of refreshment and new life. It'll be our day of restitution and joy and gladness. It'll be a day of jubilee. When we lean into the doctrine of the second coming of Christ, it enables us to face whatever comes our way because our future is sealed and sure. Our hope is in Christ. It's in Christ alone. It's in Christ alone that our hope is found. He is our light. He's our strength. He's our song. When our, our, when our hope is sure, we can sing through the hardness and the pain because Jesus has won the day. 
When we lean into this doctrine, we will be willing and ready to live entirely on, those, on its promise. We will sacrifice because of it, and we may have to suffer. But if we are Christ's and Christ is ours, we will gladly sacrifice and suffer for him. Paul's words in Romans 8.32 strike a chord as we close this morning. How did God not spare his own son, but give him up for us all? How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, we are thankful that you are faithful in your word, that your promises are sure. Lord Jesus, we know as we look out into the world that we, we feel tired. We feel like giving up. But Lord, we're thankful for this reminder. We pray that you'd help us to remember on time when things get hard that Jesus, you are coming again. Those five words, surely I am coming again, are the hope that we have that you will come and that you'll make all things new. We look forward to that day. And together we, um, along with the apostles, say, Lord Jesus, come soon. Amen.